Welcome to tonight. This is the last of our series, the parables of Luke, the fifth one. And tonight Jesus says, be humble. Now let me pray as we get into God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you for the series so far. Thank you for the ways in which we have been very deeply challenged, for the ways in which we have heard of your work in the world through Jesus, in the ways in which Jesus has spoken that we might hear. We ask again tonight as we come to listen to Jesus that you would make us like the fertile soil from that very first parable five weeks ago that we heard. Ones who come with a noble and good heart who humbly sit before you and listen and believe and are changed. Father, tonight as we deal with a very serious topic, we talk about guilt and we talk about guilt before you. We ask please that each one of us as we go home tonight may go home justified may go home knowing that we are right with you and we ask this in jesus name amen well there's a famous american writer called mark twain who's heard of mark twain oh, yeah most of you are you probably do some mark twain at school if nothing else i was at huckleberry finn i think is one of his uh, a very famous writer and he was asked once uh, what, what brought about success in life? He was a very successful man. He was asked, what, what brought about success? And Mark Twain replied with two words. He said, good decisions. Well, that sounds very nice, but, but how did you make those good decisions? To which he replied with one word. He said, experience. Well, okay, that's all very well and good, but how did you acquire experience? And Mark Twain said with two words, well, bad decisions. Bad decisions that lead to experience, that lead to making good decisions, that results in success in life. Now, that's kind of cute, isn't it? You could turn into one of those motivational posters with some, some thunderstorms and some cats. It's about what they all have on them, right? But, I have to say, yeah, yeah, that's right. The lightning cat. Success, good decisions, experience, bad decisions. You can do it. I, I don't know, something like that, right? But it, it's kind of, well, it's too easy. Because what happens when you make bad decisions? Invariably, you cause some damage. You hurt people. You hurt yourself. You break things. You mess things up. They may be things that you're able to fix. They may well not be. Each one of us, as we go through life, we, we build up a whole bunch of guilt about the bad decisions that we've made. Now, I recognise I'm speaking at the moment to a room of, of reasonably young people in the large. Perhaps you haven't had a lot of opportunity yet to make a lot of bad decisions. But I suspect that already there is guilt beginning to build. Now, for some of us, we've had plenty of years in which to hurt others and to wreak havoc. There are things that we've said and things that we've done that we rightly feel guilty for. Now, I'm not talking about false guilt, right? It's possible to make yourself feel guilty about pretty much anything. Oh, I ate a chocolate, I feel guilty, right? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the real guilt that comes from the damage that we've caused. Anyone seen the movie The Talented Mr. Ripley? I realise that this is actually quite old now, so some of you might be going, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, 1999, Matt Damon plays this character who's really good at impersonating other people. Anyway, go watch it. It's a fun movie, although kind of weird, dark, and takes some very strange twists along the way. But at one point, Tom Ripley, Matt Damon's character, he puts guilt like this. He says, don't you just take the past and put it in a room in a basement and you lock the door and you never go there? 
I mean, that's, that's what I do. And, and then you meet someone special and all you want to do is to toss them the key and say, open up, step inside. I keep wanting to do that, to fling the door open, just, just let the light in and clean everything out, but, but you can't because it's dark. There's demons. I mean, if, if anyone saw how ugly it is in there, Each one of us has that room in the basement that is full of our guilt, that is full of the bad decisions that have resulted in hurt. Now, do you take that seriously? Do you take guilt and the conscience seriously? Christianity does. Christianity does. And I'll show you why. It comes from just a couple of verses before what we read in Luke 18. Keep Luke 18 open if you've got your Bible there. That's where we're going to spend our time tonight. And notice these words that Jesus has just finished saying to those who are listening. Luke 18 and verse 7, he says, Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Do you know why Christianity takes the guilt and conscience seriously? Because a day of judgment is coming. God's judge, this Son of Man, will come to earth and he will bring perfect justice. And we like the sound of that. That sounds lovely. Until we think about it, God's judge, who is perfect, will be sitting on the bench, will be in the dock, and our whole lives... Our actions, our words, our thoughts, our motivations, everything that we've ever said, done or thought will be brought out of that room and placed before this judge. Christianity takes guilt very seriously. For guilt is the warning, the conscience pricking us, is that red light saying things aren't right. One day you will be called to account. How do you deal with your guilt? What do you do do with it? I mean, we all feel guilty at times. Do you ignore it? You just kind of stop thinking about it? There's things that if you start to go there, you blank it out and you, you do something else to distract yourself? Do you try to make up for the past? You you try really hard. I mean, I know I'm guilty about this. I'm going to work really hard to make up for it. What do you do? So the day is coming in which each one of us will face judgment for our guilt, when that door will be opened, when everything will be exposed, and God's judge will call us to account for how we have treated each other. For each one of us is God's creation. Each one of us is precious to him. And furthermore, we will be called to account for how we've treated God, whether you think about it or not. Whether this is something that concerns your day-to-day or not, you will be called to account for how you have treated the maker of the universe. Did you thank him for the good things in life? Did you follow him when he told you what to do? Did you live his way? The judge will look at our lives and say, yay or nay. Now in this parable in Luke 18, Jesus tells a story of two men who are concerned for that very question. How to deal with my guilt before God. They want their conscience cleansed. 
They know that they're not in a right relationship and they want to be in a right relationship with God. They want to go home with a sense that they are right with God. See, they come to the temple. They come to pray. They come to the place where you meet God to do business with God, at least for Israel, wanting to be right. And we see it at the end of the chapter where one of them goes home justified. That was what they were seeking, to go home right before the judge. That's justification. Two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector, go to the temple to pray. It almost sounds like the start of a joke. I don't know one. If anyone knows a joke that starts, a Pharisee and a tax collector go to a temple to pray and then you've got a good punchline, let me know and we'll have a laugh sometime. Pharisee and tax collector. Now, we need to understand these guys before we go any further. I want you to get a good picture in your head. See, Pharisee, I think in the church, we often kind of look down on the Pharisees and, and, and we write them off, right? But we need to understand how the people would have seen the Pharisee. The Pharisee is the good guy. He's the, the, the moral, the religious. I mean, we'll see a little bit more about what he's like. He's, he's, the, he's just, I mean, well, he's awesome. The tax collector, on the other hand, he is scum. Seriously scum. So the way it worked, right, they would have had areas allotted, say ours was Ingleburn, and people would bid for Ingleburn. I reckon I can raise 100 grand in taxes from Ingleburn. And they'd bid to the Roman, uh, the Roman whoever was, was ruling, I don't know, the, uh, the, the Roman ruler, and they'd bid 100 grand, 150. I reckon I can raise 200 grand in taxes. And, and so one of them would win the, the bid, and they'd go around and raise the taxes. And the way for them to make money was to raise more than what they had bid. So they were extortionists. They skimmed profit off the top. And as far as religion was concerned, here are Israelites who've basically sold their soul to the devil. I mean, they're working for the Romans. They've accepted an authority other than God's. Are you getting the picture? Pharisee, good guy. Tax collector, really, really bad guy. Now, I wanted to try some find some modern-day examples. Uh, and, and I'll run through them, right? They might resonate, they might not. Up, up in the top-hand corner there, there's the tradie, the modern-day tradie, Tony's tradie, if you like. Tradies are, are like gold in our society. They are the guys who work hard, earn a good living, run a good business. We love our tradies. But then the bottom corner, there's the Pharisee, right? Tradie, Pharisee. Maybe goes to church twice a year. Uh, bottom corner, parking inspector. Ooh. Right? Gives you the $150 fine instead of the $100 fine. You were only 30 seconds away from the car. And they're writing you the ticket. We hate them. Boo. How about this one? Millionaire philanthropist. I know it's Bill Gates. You might hate windows. Okay, this is the top-hand corner. But he's a good guy. He's used his cash to do good. Bottom hand, used car salesman. Yeah. Hey, you want a car? <laughs> what about this one? Top hand, librarian. I want to say boo to a goose, right? We love librarians. Any librarians in the room? No, good, okay. Lovely people, sip tea at home, right? I mean, that's... And then, Tom Waterhouse. Yeah, I don't need to say any more, do I? Right, what about this one? Pro bono lawyer up the top. I couldn't find a picture that represented a pro bono lawyer, so there you go. Uh, lawyer who does stuff for free, right? Maybe a human rights lawyer, working in Africa somewhere, uh, helping remove diamond mining companies or something, I don't know, for free. And then bottom hand, CD real estate. You know the one. Come, sign the lease. Oh, you're going to give me 30 bucks a week more than we advertised? Yeah, I've got someone else otherwise. And uh, yeah. 
Ambo or pimp. I mean, that's kind of same sort of thing. And let's talk about the religious aspect for a moment. It's almost like comparing a Salvation Army officer. I mean, as far as the society is concerned, these are good guys. They do the right thing. They don't drink, don't swear. You know, they're the moral, upright, good living guys compared to a Satanist. Okay, there's, there's the extremes. A Pharisee and a tax collector go to the temple to pray. They want their guilt dealt with. They want to be right before God. The pillar of society and the dredge. And only one was justified. Only one went home right. And did you notice as it was read, it was the wrong one. I tell you, verse 14, this man, the tax collector, the sinner, went home justified before God rather than the other. How could the Pharisee have possibly gotten it wrong? He he, he was convinced he was on the road to heaven, concerned for doing good, concerned for doing good for God. And yet, dare I say it, headed for hell. What is it about the Pharisee that he got so wrong? Now, I want to point out two features of what the Pharisee gets wrong. Confidence and comparison. Confidence and comparison. I know there's no outline in your handout, so there you go. There's the next two headings. Firstly, he has confidence in himself. And so, back in verse 9, as Jesus is telling this parable, to some who were confident of their own righteousness. Jesus told this parable, and the Pharisee is clearly the one who is confident in himself. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. He's a good man. He's confident, perhaps rightly, in himself. He's a good man good person, maybe genuinely good. If we knew him, we would have been like, wow, you're really nice. You're moral. right? Did you notice? I'm not a robber. I'm not an evildoer. I'm not an adulterer. He's faithful with what he has. He's not like the tax collector. He's a moral man and he's a religious man. I fast twice a week. He fasts 50 times more than he had to. I give a tenth of all that I have. Jesus will say on another time, these Pharisees give a tenth of even their herbs and their spices. If you, if you do any sort of cooking, uh, you know what time is? Not, not the clock time, but the, the, the herb time. Okay, The blokes are going no, the chicks are going yes, I don't know why. Blokes, we need to do some cooking classes. Time's awesome. Its leaves are about this big, right? Tiny, 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 a couple of mils across. Can you imagine picking one tenth off? All right, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. It goes to God. One, two, three, four. I mean... I don't know if that's how he did it, probably weighed it. But anyway, one-tenth of everything I have, I give to you, God. He's a moral man and he's a religious man and he's confident that that serves him right before God, that that deals with the guilt within. And so he stands before God. He's probably doing some of these ones out the front with the tassels kind of coming down. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. He feels confident. Unfortunately, it's a false confidence. You see, it's a confidence that comes from comparison. Self-confidence, self-religion, self-good always comes from comparing to others. Say verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and 
looked down on everyone else. What does the Pharisee pray? I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, this tax collector. Compared to them, God, I'm amazing. And maybe he was. The bar was set where he could meet it. It happens sometimes at funerals. I haven't been to heaps of funerals, um, but but I know occasionally I've heard it said oh, about the person who's deceased. Oh, they were they were a great person. He was a great guy. Wouldn't hurt a fly. Was really good, really moral, great person. I'm I'm sure she's looking. She's up in heaven looking down at us now because she was really good. She did the right thing all the time. And you know, because you know the person who's died, that in saying that, you're ignoring a whole bunch of indiscretions. I mean, you're ignoring so much about their character. In the funeral of one guy uh, who, who really was a bit of a rat bag. I mean, he, he drank, he smoked, he swore like a sailor. All he was concerned about was himself, right? He kept the nurses running around at the, uh, at the, the home that he was in because he kept smuggling booze in. He, all he was concerned about was himself. And yet at the funeral, you would have heard these words. Oh, what a, he was a good man. I'm sure he's in heaven now. Com- compared to others, I mean, he didn't, he wasn't a, he didn't do any rorting on his taxes. He always paid his taxes. Uh, uh, he was faithful to his wife. Well, uh, to his second wife anyway. Uh, he was... The thing about self-religion, in fact, about any religion, where you have to do stuff, you're always comparing yourself to others. You set the bar where you are rather than trying to meet the bar that God set. Can you imagine you rock up to heaven? You've died, that's why you're there. And you're walking up to the pearly gates and, uh, and the big man's standing there and he says, all right, what's the go? And you walk up to him and you go, well, you pull a list out of your pocket. Done it. I'm good. I met, I met all these things. I mean, this is the bar, isn't it? This is what you need to do to be good. And God looks at it and goes, what? And, and reaches behind him and pulls out his list and goes, no, this is it. And it's about this big compared to your one. That was the, I mean, it's ludicrous, right? It, it just, it's, but that's what we say to ourselves. I've met the bar where I have set it. That's what religion does. And so this man, his confidence is a false confidence. It's in himself and he keeps being confident because he keeps looking around him and going, oh, well, I'm better than you, 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 so I must be good. doesn't work. What a contrast we have. There's your third heading, contrast, as we come to this tax collector. Verse 13, the tax collector stood at a distance. He's not up the front. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. He can't look God in the eye beat his breast, and all he could say was, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, would you have mercy on me? Now, when we hear the word sinner, I don't want you to hear what the Pharisee was saying a sinner was. Because the Pharisee is standing there saying, the adulterer is the sinner. The tax collector, he is the sinner. The robber is the sinner. The murderer is the sinner. And we attempted to do the same thing. I'm not an adulterer, therefore I'm not a sinner. I'm not a murderer, hopefully. Therefore I'm not a sinner. What I want you to hear when you hear the word sinner is this. A sinner is somebody 
who has failed to treat God as God. You understand that? Who has failed to treat God as God. And so the good things in your life, and I'm sure you have good things in your life. We're here in a heated building. You're wearing nice clothes. You probably ate at least two, if not three meals already today. You came here in a car. You're going to go home to your own home, or at least a nicely rented one. You've got furniture, TVs, DVDs, technology. You're going to sleep in a very comfortable bed, very safe tonight. You've probably got a family who loves you. You've got friends who care for you. You're employed or studying. I mean, I, I can just keep going. All these good things, do you know who gave them to you? God did. Did you thank him for them? Well, I don't know. We don't treat God as God. God, the one who made the world and who said, I want my world to do this. Did you listen to him? Do you go, oh, yeah, okay, God, you want me to do this? That's what I'm going to do. Or do you go, actually, you know what, God, I'd prefer to be doing this if you don't mind. A sinner is someone who doesn't treat God as God and as a consequence doesn't treat people as if they were made by God. Doesn't treat people as if they were made by God. And so you see people as someone who at best are going to be friends for you, at best they're going to do nice things for you and at worst they're just, well, they're there to be used and then thrown away. You're rude to your family. You're selfish with your friends. You're only concerned for your own promotion at work. Okay, I've painted a picture for you. That is what you hear when you hear the word sinner. Doesn't treat God as God and therefore doesn't treat people as if they were made by God. And this tax collector, he knows that his basement is full of guilt. That little room... Well, it's not a little room. It's a warehouse in his basement. He knows that it is full of his mistreatment of God and his mistreatment of people. He knows and accepts God's verdict. Guilty. And he knows that God knows. All he can say is, please, would you have mercy? And you know, that's the first step. That's the beginning of right relationship with God. The first step to a right relationship is to acknowledge that you are not in a right relationship. It's a little bit Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Isn't that the first step? You've got to, before you can become some sort of treatment, you have to admit, I'm an alcoholic. The first step to fixing the relationship with God is to admit that we aren't in a right relationship and therefore that we cannot fix it ourselves. This man went home justified. Now, there are two ways to be justified in a court of law. I think. I just thought this up. I'm not a lawyer. There are two ways to be justified before a judge. The first one is to be innocent. You come up before the judge and someone accuses you and says, oh, so-and-so did this, and you're standing there, and the judge reviews all the evidence. He goes, well, actually, he didn't. The law has nothing to say to this man. He's innocent before the law. Therefore, we're going to let him go. He's justified. Now, the second way to be justified is to be found guilty and to pay the penalty. So, oh, so-and-so was speeding. They have to pay a fine of 150 bucks. I've got the, the proof on the radar. Yep, they did it. They're guilty. They pay the 150 bucks, and then that's it. You're justified. The law has nothing more to say to you. In fact, uh, I mean, this is, this is kind of a 
really by the side. But apparently in some Commonwealth countries, uh, when people were hung, like that they were executed, that's how they'd write it in the statutes. So-and-so was justified today. The law has nothing more to say to this person. Now, unfortunately, they're dead, so they can't really do anything else. But as far as the law is concerned, they are justified. So let me ask you the question, and this tax collector comes to the temple to pray. He knows he is guilty, so it's not option one, and yet somehow he goes home justified. How can that be? Somehow the penalty for his guilt must be paid. God, would you have mercy on me? Do you want to know what God's mercy is? We'll skip ahead a couple of verses again. Go to verse 31. And Jesus is going to tell his disciples what the mercy of God is. He took the 12, his inner crew, he took the 12 aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. Notice the Son of Man, it's the same character who will judge that we saw at the start. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. And on the third day he will rise again. The disciples didn't understand any of it. They didn't get what Jesus was saying. But we can. This side of the events, we can look back and say the guilt that the tax collector had deserved death. And yet the mercy of God was that Jesus died for him. And not just died for him, but was raised back to life. He is the one who will judge. The judge is also the saviour, risen to new life. The mercy of God is that he pays for guilt. How do you deal with the guilt inside? With your conscience saying, something's not right. How do you deal with it? How do you relate to God? Now, maybe tonight you still have confidence in yourself. Again, to quote uh, the talented Mr. Ripley, to quote Tom, he puts it like this. Well, whatever you do, however terrible, however hurtful, it it all makes sense, doesn't it, in, in your own head. You never meet anyone that thinks they're a bad person. We justify ourselves. Please hear tonight, it doesn't work. And by the way, Anglicans are quite good at appearing to be self-justified. We come to church, we take communion, we do the things, we say the prayers, maybe you know them off by heart. Are you trusting in that? However, if you really want your guilt dealt with, if you want that basement to be opened and to be cleansed, if you want the punishment that you deserve for the bad consequences out of the decisions that you've made in life, if you want that dealt with, then please, would you do what the tax collector did? Come to God and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. I want to tell you about a series and I want to finish with a question. Uh, Monday next week, we start life. Five-week series of dinners uh, with Joe at Joe's place to consider Jesus, to consider who Jesus is, what he claims, and what difference will he and can he make in your life. Now, if tonight you're sitting there thinking, oh, gee, 
This is serious. I don't know where I stand. Or maybe you're thinking, actually, I need to get right with God. Then please come and talk to us. You'll get a free feed. You'll get a good night of discussion, of teaching, an opportunity to ask your questions. And you will meet Jesus. That's life. I want to finish with a question. Uh, you die tonight on the way home. That's not a prophecy, okay? That's just a, a hypothetical. You die tonight on the way home. You go to the pearly gates. And again, God's standing there and he looks you in the eye and he says, why should I let you in? Why should I let you in? I can see your guilt. <laughs> that room that you think is locked, I see it all. Why should I let you in? And what are you going to say? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this series. Thank you for, again, the ways you've told us, the ways you've challenged us. We thank you for this finale. What an extraordinary challenge to us, to us who in our richness, in our wealth, in our capability, in our education, think so highly of ourselves. This challenge to us that says we are sinners. All we deserve is condemnation. When your judge comes, all we deserve is execution. And so, Father, we throw ourselves at your feet and say, please, would you have mercy on us? For each one of us tonight, help us to be able to look at our own lives, to be good enough at introspection to see whether we are self-reliant, whether our confidence is placed in our own good works and deeds. That comes out of comparison with those that we look down on. Father, if there are people like that here tonight, please would you open their eyes to see that it is a false confidence that they may throw themselves on your mercy as well. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.